Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Obsessive jealousy is characterized by an intense and irrational fear of losing one's romantic partner to another. This fear can lead to obsessive thoughts and behaviors that are unhealthy and damaging to both the individuals experiencing jealousy and the other person or persons in the relationship. In the most extreme cases, obsessive jealousy can lead to violent acts and even, in the rarest cases, murder. In some instances, the fear of losing the person you love to someone else can push anyone, including smart and accomplished people, to resort to violence. Now, if you take someone with undiagnosed borderline personality disorder and you combine it with the intense feeling that can stem from obsessive jealousy, it can be like lighting a proverbial match. People who suffer from borderline personality disorder can experience an intense preoccupation with the words, actions, and intentions of a romantic rival. It can lead to intense feelings of insecurity, fear of abandonment, resentment, and in some instances, even a murderous rage. Today's case begins with the perfect storm of someone with an undiagnosed mental illness, obsessive feelings of unrequited love, and the belief she was smart enough to get away with murder. It also began with a game night. Sheila Davalu had met Paul Christos while they were both in school pursuing advanced degrees in biochemistry and medical research. Sheila was immediately attracted to the smart and accomplished teaching assistant in her advanced chemistry class, and soon the two were spending all of their time together, both inside and outside of their study groups. However, for an entire year, Sheila who had told Paul she was of Italian and French descent, had shared that she was hiding a huge secret. She became preoccupied with this secret, talking about it constantly, but without any plans for resolution. Occasionally, she promised she would eventually share the secret if he promised not to leave her. It became such a huge obstacle in the relationship that all they seemed to talk about when they were together was this secret. Eventually, Paul learned about the secret, but it wasn't from Sheila. Instead, he learned about the secret from the secret himself. Sheila's husband contacted him and asked him to meet for lunch. The man introduced himself as Fareed. And the two had a friendly conversation where Sheila's husband asked Paul to back off so he could work on his marriage with his wife. 
Paul just couldn't believe that his beautiful girlfriend was married to the shy and circumspect Middle Eastern man sitting in front of him. Eventually, Farid asked Paul if he knew where Sheila was at the moment, and Paul answered that she was at her grandparents' home in New Jersey, a home he had never visited when he thought about it. Farid told Paul that Sheila was really at the apartment they both shared in New York. Farid explained he had two homes. One was in New York for business and for Sheila to stay in between classes, and a home in New Jersey where they both lived together as man and wife. Farid explained to Paul that, quote, Sheila is a kind of person who is very emotional. For instance, she'd see a bird on the side of the road with a broken wing, and she'd go out the other way to try to help the bird. But Sheila is troubled. I want to work things out with her. That's when Paul realized this must be the big secret that Sheila had been talking about. But still, Paul couldn't imagine his girlfriend of one year was living a secret life. That is when Fareed suggested taking a cab ride over to his apartment to confront Sheila. And when he saw Sheila's car with the missing hubcap parked outside the apartment building, the truth of the matter was finally sinking in. Regardless of the evidence parked in front of his own eyes, Paul still wanted more proof. Fareed walked Paul into the lobby and had the doorman call up to the apartment. Paul was stunned when Sheila answered the phone. And then, finally, Sheila was forced to admit to Paul that she was married. Paul was devastated because he was already imagining a future with Sheila as his wife. And it's been a year together of not knowing this would be devastating. But soon, Fareed would change his mind about trying to work things out with Sheila. They were both of Iranian descent, and this was an arranged marriage. For both family and cultural reasons, they both wanted the marriage to work. However, shortly after Sheila agreed to work things out, she did something that terrified Fareed. She tried to blow him up inside of his New Jersey home. One morning, Fareed awoke to the smell of natural gas in his bedroom. He jumped out of bed searching for the source. It was becoming hard to breathe and he could hear the hiss of all the gas burners, which had been blown out and left on. He ran to the window and saw Sheila quickly exiting the house. When he confronted her, she admitted her intentions. She confessed to Fareed that she had a problematic mental pattern with men. It seems what she really had was a desire to harm the men in her life and anyone foolish enough to knowingly or unknowingly come between her and her object of desire. But we'll discuss that later in this episode. And so, as a result of Sheila's murder attempt, she was finally free from her first husband. A few weeks later, Sheila called Paul and asked him to meet her for lunch. She began by telling him that she had met Fareed when she was living in Italy and had married him on a whim. But Paul called her out on a lie and eventually she admitted that they were both Iranian and it was an arranged marriage with a much older man. She told Paul that she was leaving for Reed and had been horribly unhappy and wanted to work things out with him. For Reed was seven years older than Sheila, who married her when she was just 19 years old. Now that Sheila was 22 years old, she described her marriage to Fareed as a nightmare. She insisted that they had been living as roommates and acquaintances rather than as husband and wife. She explained that her husband was oppressive and had wanted her to stay inside the apartment and was against her pursuing her advanced master's degree program. 
a degree program that paved the way to her relationship with Paul. Regardless of her lies, it didn't take much groveling or convincing or even an apology to get Paul back. He was 100% on board with resuming their relationship where they left off, and he promised to support Sheila through her divorce. Now, maybe you're on board with this idea. She was trapped in this arranged marriage and wasn't happy. But for the sake of our story, we are going to tell you now that this is all untrue. Later, Paul would find out that Sheila was not forced to marry Fareed. And at the time of her marriage, her parents were actually against it. Sheila also told Paul that Fareed was the first man she had ever slept with, and as a result, was sexually repressed until she had met him. This, of course, would turn out to be another lie among many more to come. It would be years later when Paul learned of Sheila's murder attempt on Fareed. Unfortunately, it would be around the same time he would learn how far Sheila would go to get rid of the unwanted men in her life. In this episode, we're going to fast forward 10 years into Sheila's life. But don't worry, we'll cover all the details in episode 2. Sheila and Paul dated for another 8 years before they finally got married. A few years into their marriage, once again according to Sheila, she was living with a husband who was more of an acquaintance and a roommate than a lover. In short, Sheila had lost that loving feeling. But what she hadn't lost was her interest in games. On March 23, 2003, Sheila told Paul that she had heard about a game at work that she wanted to play with him. Now, according to Paul, he and Sheila hadn't had sex in several years, and he was up for anything that might spark some romantic feelings towards him from his wife. But first, before they could play the game, Sheila insisted that they both drive out to Paul's mother's home for a visit. She was adamant that it had to be this day and she wouldn't take no for an answer. Later, Paul would realize that Sheila had taken him to his mother's home for a last meal and visit with his mother, just like a death row inmate gets before their execution. I mean, Sheila was nothing if not thoughtful, right? Once home, Sheila explained the rules of the game. They would take turns being blindfolded and handcuffed to a chair. They would lie on the ground with their hands over their head, handcuffed to the base of the chair. Sheila insisted that the game had to take place in the guest room in case there was a mess to clean up. This didn't really make sense to Paul, but he knew better than to try to change Sheila's mind. Paul was hoping that the game would lead to sex, and Sheila was hoping that the game would lead to Paul's death. And as it turns out, they were both going to be greatly disappointed. Sheila offered to go first and explained that once she was blindfolded and handcuffed to the chair, Paul was to go around the condo and look for objects that he could rub over Sheila's face and body, and then she had to guess the object. Paul began to think this wasn't going to lead to sex after all, but he was happy to play the game if it meant Sheila was happy. The first item Paul used was one of their dogs, and she guessed quickly enough that it was their dog. The second item was a camera, but Sheila guessed a box. And then she got angry because she couldn't guess the second item and insisted that they switch. Once Paul was on the floor with his hands handcuffed over his head to the base of a wooden chair, Sheila selected the first item. Sheila selected an action hero figurine, a shampoo bottle, and other mundane household objects. 
Paul was guessing them all right, which began to irritate Sheila. That's when Paul heard Sheila go out to the kitchen for something more difficult. He thought he had heard her going through the kitchen drawers. This time, she had something in both hands. In one hand, she had a candle, which Paul smelled right away and was about to guess, when the second item plunged into Paul's chest. It was a paring knife. To Paul, it felt like she had dropped a dumbbell on his chest. He began to think the candle had a wire in it that might have cut him. That's when he felt another sharp thrust and he screamed out again. For a minute, it felt like the wind had been knocked out of him. For a few seconds, there was silence, and then he heard Sheila scream. She said she thought she might have heard him and told him that he was bleeding. She wanted to know how he was feeling. He told her he was having a hard time breathing and asked her to remove the blindfold. He began sweating profusely and his body was shaking. Sheila told him that it was an accident and she didn't know what to do. She appeared intentionally dramatic and unwilling to calm down enough to help him. Eventually, he demanded again that she remove the blindfold. Instead, she told him once again it was an accident and she thought the candle might have hurt him. He told her once again, this time forcefully not to panic, but to remove the blindfold. Finally, Sheila cooperated. When he looked down, he still didn't realize that he had been stabbed. He didn't know how deep his wounds were, but he knew they were bleeding and he was feeling dizzy and winded. He told Sheila to remove the handcuffs and that's when she began frantically looking around the room. She had forgotten where she had left the key. Again, she began acting confused as if all she could focus on was finding the elusive key, which she knew that she had in her pocket. Paul suggested she help him break the chair, but insisted a better use of her time would be searching for the key while she prayed he'd finally drop dead from blood loss. But prayers weren't working that night for Sheila. Paul was beginning to panic for real when he noticed the blood oozing from his chest. He began to break the chair until he was able to free one hand from the handcuff and both hands from the chair. He was still winded and began to suspect that one of his lungs had been punctured, which worried him. It worried Sheila too because she was also beginning to think she might have punctured his lung, which she found troubling because she was probably aiming for his heart. She pretended to be frantic again when Paul finally was able to stand up and realized that all of his pain was in his chest area. Sheila left the room and returned with a glass of juice and a bottle of NyQuil. She was sure all Paul would need was some hydration and rest. She began demanding that Paul drink it, but for once, Paul wasn't interested in what Sheila was telling him. He demanded that she call 911. He had to repeat himself over and over again. Please, Sheila, help me. Call 911. Please, just get an ambulance here fast before I pass out. Sheila began looking for her cell phone in slow motion, and it was a little after 4 p.m. when Sheila made her first call to 911. Sheila began speaking into the phone, telling the operator that she and her husband had been playing a game and he was hurt. She explained he had been bleeding and she begged them to please hurry. The only problem was there was no one else on the other line. Sheila had only pretended the call. While they were waiting for the emergency vehicle that wasn't coming, Sheila tried once again to get Paul to drink a bottle of NyQuil and take a permanent nap. While they waited, Paul was back on the floor breathless, taking way too long to die. He insisted that Sheila call again. She didn't want to bother them because they were obviously busy, but Paul insisted she call again and find out what was taking so long. 
That's when Sheila placed her second fake call to 911. This time, Paul demanded to talk to the operator himself. But Sheila said they didn't want to talk to him and that they were still really busy. She told him that one was a stroke victim that was way more important than two attempted fatal knife wounds to Paul's heart. She told him that the operator said it was going to take another 25 minutes before they could have anyone there. 25 minutes passed and still no ambulance. Paul insisted she call back and let him talk to the operator this time. Sheila told him the operator didn't want to talk to him and just wanted him to stay calm and sleep. That's when Paul began begging Sheila to drive him to the hospital. Eventually, she finally agreed. However, she couldn't have Paul showing up at the hospital alive or in handcuffs, so that's when she suddenly found the key and removed his handcuffs. Paul urged Sheila to hurry. He told her that he felt himself fading and didn't have time to wait. Sheila probably liked the fading part of that statement and decided a nice slow drive to the hospital was exactly what they both needed. But before that could happen, Sheila wanted to place one more fake call to emergency services. She stepped outside for that call, and when she returned, she said, yep, they're not coming. So she got Paul into the car and started driving slowly. Later reports even showed a call to the sheriff's office complaining about a dangerously slow driver on the highway. Paul began complaining that Sheila's eyes weren't on the road and instead they were on him in the back seat. That's when she suddenly pulled over, opened the door, and wanted to check on Paul. He told her if she didn't get back in the car and drive him to the hospital, he would find a way to drive himself. Next, he told her he was having trouble staying conscious, and that seemed to be the right words to get Sheila back behind the wheel. Sheila aborted her plan and began slowly driving Paul to the hospital again. They finally arrived, but Sheila drove right past the emergency room entrance to a back parking lot near the psychiatric entrance. Paul was so confused and couldn't understand why Sheila wasn't listening to him. Instead of turning the car around, she got out, opened the back door one more time, and suddenly lunged at Paul. That's when she stabbed Paul a third time in the chest. This time, she nicked an artery in his heart, and his entire chest turned bright red. That's when Paul saw the knife for the first time and realized that he hadn't been hurt by a candle. His wife was trying to kill him, and she wasn't done. He began yelling for help, and Sheila tried to stab him a fourth time. He grabbed the blade of the knife with his hand and began fighting back. He told her to let go of the knife while she told him to stop fighting her and get back in the car. That's when two people playing basketball began to notice the fight. Paul called out to them for help, but Sheila insisted that everything was fine. While Sheila was distracted, Paul was able to headbutt Sheila and knock her to the ground. While she was still down, Paul took the knife and threw it into a pile of bricks where she couldn't reach it. Later, Paul would say that he just wanted to get the knife away from her so he could focus on getting himself from the far parking lot to the emergency room entrance. His new wound was actively bleeding, and the adrenaline from his life-or-death fight with Sheila was starting to dissipate. As Paul tried to make it towards the emergency room, Sheila began begging Paul to stay with her and telling him that she loved him. Paul knew he was losing strength just as Sheila was regaining hers. She wasn't letting go, determined to keep him from making it for help. Paul tried to hit Sheila to get her off of him again, but he missed. However, he was able to push Sheila away, and she fell down just long enough for him to get away one more time. 
That's when he tried his best to make it closer to the ER entrance. Unfortunately, Paul was disoriented from his blood loss and didn't realize he was closer to the behavioral health center than he was to the emergency room entrance. Luckily for him, there were two employees outside the center, and one of them was a medical resident. They noticed his pleas for help and his struggle to walk and rushed over to help him. Just as Paul approached them, Sheila came running up behind him, insisting that Paul attacked her and begging them not to help him. At this point, Paul could no longer stand on his own. He was down on the ground, slowly dying from the injury to his heart. Paul begged them to call 911 and to get help. As one of the residents called for help, Sheila suddenly ran towards her car, dropping her phone in the process, and drove away. But within minutes, she drove back closer to Paul. She got out of the car and asked Paul to get in the car with her. When he refused, Sheila approached Paul and whispered into his ear, telling him not to tell anyone what happened. She begged him not to get her in trouble. Then she turned to the two hospital employees and told them that it would be faster if she drove Paul back to the ER entrance and to allow him to get in the car with her. They told her no and that they had an ambulance on the way. They weren't going to let Paul leave with her which was lucky for Paul because he was in no shape to fight her off again. And then the medical resident grabbed the keys out of Sheila's car so she couldn't leave either. He didn't know what had happened between them, but he knew that Sheila was likely responsible. Sheila again begged Paul to keep his mouth shut and say that it was an accident. By the time that police and an ambulance had arrived because of Paul's condition, a police officer jumped in the ambulance to get a dying declaration in case he didn't survive his injuries. Paul was explaining that his wife had stabbed him and was trying to kill him. He was also able to tell the officer where he could find the knife. It turns out that the police were also able to recover Sheila's cell phone, the one she allegedly used to make the two fake calls to 911. Paul's story was good enough to have Sheila taken into custody, while Paul underwent emergency open-heart surgery to repair the damage to his heart. The last thing Paul remembered saying before waking up was asking the EMT if he was going to die. Before his attack, Paul was a healthy 32-year-old man. Police believed that had he not fought as hard as he did, he would have suffered a fatal heart attack and died in the parking lot of the hospital. Once Paul was in recovery, he told officers about Sheila's game, the blindfold, the handcuffs, and the second knife attack in the parking lot. Sheila had been arrested for aggravated assault and was taken to the Westchester County Police Department for questioning. When she arrived, she had been told that Paul had suffered grave injuries and was undergoing life-saving open-heart surgery with a questionable diagnosis for recovery. Given Sheila's answers, she must have assumed that Paul wouldn't survive, which gave her the opportunity to create and control the narrative. Sheila put on quite the performance, insisting that she loved Paul and couldn't live without him. Detective Allison Carpentier questioned Sheila, and immediately she suspected there was more going on than just a domestic violence incident that escalated into a stabbing. She found Sheila's behavior to be odd and her crying without tears to be inauthentic. 
She was wondering how a college professor and doctoral candidate and a pharmaceutical researcher earning high incomes could get themselves into a life-or-death knife fight. As we know, domestic violence incidents go across all socioeconomic lines, but this didn't seem to fall into that category. Carpentier is the type of detective that operated on instinct and self-described herself as nosy. It would be this instinct that would unravel the secret life of Sheila Davalu. At first, Sheila told the detective that Paul had come home from work, stabbed, asking for help. Sheila said that he worked in a crime-ridden area and she believed he could have been mugged or attacked by a homeless person. This story didn't make any sense for many reasons, one of which was that in the ambulance, Paul made it very clear that Sheila had stabbed him and tried to kill him. She continued pushing Sheila to tell her the truth, which continued to change as the night wore on. Every question she asked seemed like a struggle for Sheila to answer. She couldn't answer with the truth, and she was having difficulty making her lies fit the evidence. She began telling the detective that she gets nauseous around blood and wasn't able to look at Paul's wounds or help him. She told her that instead, she decided to drive him to the hospital, and it never occurred to her to call 911. She sounded confused despite the events taking place just a few hours earlier. When asked why she drove past the emergency room, she again sounded confused and said she got lost. Sheila had attended school at the same campus and her own mother worked at the hospital. It was inconceivable that Sheila would get lost and drive past the well-marked entrance to a darkly lit corner of the parking lot. The biggest mystery was Sheila's supposed confusion around Paul's injuries. One minute, she would say she didn't know if he was bleeding and hadn't looked at his wounds, and then another minute, she would say that she looked at his wounds and they appeared to be superficial. The detective knew that Paul had been stabbed three times and she knew his clothing was soaked with blood, so Sheila's answers weren't making any sense. Next, she explained that she began to walk Paul to the emergency room, forgetting to mention the knife fight that they had at the edge of the parking lot. Finally, another officer came in with an update. They had located the knife that Sheila had used to stab Paul in the brick piles, where Paul told them that they would find it. They also had Sheila's phone with an interesting call history. But most important of all was Paul was out of surgery, and he was awake, and he was talking. That's when Carpentier startled Sheila and asked her to tell her about the game. Sheila denied there was a game, she denied making any phone calls, and she denied knowing that Paul was gravely injured. Next, she asked Sheila where to find the knife. Sheila, with wide eyes, said that she hadn't seen a knife, and that's when Carpentier said, what if I told you I had the knife? She asked how a knife from her home got to the brick pile in the parking lot. She told Sheila, what I find here is an educated person being very dishonest. I want to know what happened today in your apartment. Sheila answered that she was in shock by these revelations and didn't know what had happened. The detective said that she didn't go to work that day to play games with a liar. That's when Sheila said she was too embarrassed to discuss the game, but it was a consensual game and she isn't sure what happened. 
Sheila's response each time the questions got tough was to cry and declare that she couldn't live without Paul. He was the love of her life. Then she said she was too embarrassed to discuss the game and couldn't talk about it again. She buried her face in her hands and declared, we are normal people, and continued with her tearless crying. Sheila insisted the game led to Paul accidentally injuring himself, and that's all she would say about it. By that time, Paul had told the investigator at the hospital that Sheila had called 911, but the ambulance never arrived. And they knew from Sheila's cell phone call history that she hadn't placed any phone calls for emergency help. Sheila said that Paul was probably confused and wanted her to call the ambulance, but never actually asked her to call for help. When asked why she tried to get him to drink a bottle of NyQuil, she told the detective she thought Paul needed to rest. She continued stating that she couldn't live without Paul and he takes care of her emotionally and she couldn't survive without him. Instead of answering specific questions, Sheila would go to her standard line of how much she loved and needed her husband. She also kept mentioning that she doesn't harm insects and she can't handle the sight of blood, as if this was enough to stop the questioning and declare her innocence. And then Sheila was told that Paul remembered her talking to a 911 operator and Sheila continued denying she made those calls. But she had made a phone call while Paul was waiting for an ambulance to arrive that was never coming. It was to a contact in Sheila's phone. It was to a man by the name of Nelson. For some reason, Detective Carpentier believed that Nelson held the key to why Sheila tried to kill her mild-mannered husband that night. The name Nelson gathered even more importance when Carpentier discovered that a man named Nelson had come by the crime scene. He was there to have dinner with Sheila. When he was told that Sheila had been arrested for stabbing her husband, he told the officer that Sheila wasn't married. They weren't sure if Nelson was a witness, an innocent bystander, or an accomplice. They wanted to know more about him before they call him in. On a hunch, they called Sheila's job and asked for Nelson's last name. The receptionist told them it was Nelson Sessler. Carpentier was about to find out not only was Nelson the key to what happened the night between Sheila and Paul, he was also the key to solving a five-month-old homicide. The victim in that homicide was his girlfriend, Anna Lisa Raimundo. Carpentier contacted the Stamford, Connecticut Police Department and discovered that Nelson Sessler at one time was a suspect in his girlfriend's murder. Then they discovered that Anna Lisa, Nelson, and Sheila all worked together at Purdue Pharmaceuticals. That's where we are going to end this week's episode. Next week, we learn all about Sheila's obsession with her co-worker, Nelson Sessler, and her obsessive jealousy towards his girlfriend, Anna Lisa. We'll also learn that Nelson had some secrets of his own. This is a wild case to start us off for 2023. Join us next week for part two as we conclude the rest of the story. Before we end, we want to send a special thank you to those of you that support us through Patreon. Thanks for being a part of Crime Salad. This week, we want to welcome Alex, Tiara, Kay, and Melissa. Enjoy the ad-free listens and bonus content. As always, thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. <laughs>